So everybody's in Ezekiel? Are you there? Okay. Um, now I want to draw your attention to that earlier chapter that I mentioned in chapter 10 because when we started our series in Ezekiel, we were doing it on Wednesday night. So a lot of you didn't get a chance to, to see this being um, studied back a while ago. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, this kind of lines up a little bit or follows in with what we're picking up in here today. So Ezekiel 10 verse 18, here's what we read. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim and the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Here Ezekiel was given a vision back a while ago of this, the, the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. That's what Ezekiel is seeing. Now, this is important for us to understand the magnitude of this. The people thought that God was obligated to be there at the temple and make his presence known. That because they got the temple standing, they're safe, basically. God's never gonna leave us. God's never gonna depart from us. God's never gonna let anything happen to us because we got the temple. The very visible presence, uh, uh, the uh, visible thing of God's presence there. So they thought we're all good, but now all of a sudden Ezekiel is seeing this vision of the glory of God departing from the temple. And Eli's daughter-in-law, back in 1 Samuel 4, she called her son when she realized her husband had died and Eli had died and the ark of God was captured, taken away from them by the Philistines. She called her newborn son Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. That's the word Ichabod. And that's what Ezekiel has seen. Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. I remember back and, and every time I, I, I see that word Ichabod, it reminds me of a, a story when I was back in Bible college and you know, everybody, students, they're trying to really exercise their spiritual gifts. And, and one time in chapel, um, in a church service, there was one student who was trying to, you know, give a word from the Lord and just the danger of not walking in, in, in you know, um, in a way honoring the Lord that, that Ichabod, the glory would depart. And he said, instead of Ichabod, he said, Michelob upon this place. And so not a word from the Lord, I don't think. I don't think that was it. Uh, I was like, Michelob, interesting. Well, I'll, you know. No, I didn't, I didn't try it. But um, So kind of funny. But that, the, the idea is Ichabod. And that's what's happening in, in Ezekiel 10 as he sees the glory of the Lord departing. Now, the reality is this can happen in a person's life so subtly. Just as the glory of God left the inner sanctuary and hovered in the courtyard, so too we can be functioning as though God is at work in our lives. We're still doing things, but we're no longer doing it through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's left the building, so to speak. Just like this scenario here that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 10 is the glory of the Lord departed and hovered kind of over here and then it went out through the east gate. Well, we too can kind of, you know, have an inner spiritual life where, where the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But we also have that outward ministry where we're engaging with others. And if that inner spiritual life is not in proper order, then our outward uh, ministry is greatly affected. People in Ezekiel's day were still ministering around the temple. They're still functioning in a way, but God had left the building. There was no fruit from it. And eventually it would all come to a crashing halt as the temple would be destroyed by the Babylonians. And sometimes, you know what? We can continue on doing the work, 
but there's no life, there's no energy and fruit of the Spirit, and it, and it leads to a great fall. When we think we can function and minister in a way apart from the Lord, apart from the Lord's presence. Samson is a great example of that, isn't he? You know, and, and so we were covering Judges just on Wednesday, going through the whole book, and Samson is a key player in the book of Judges, one of the judges that God raised up, but yet he began to function in a way where he became reliant upon his own ability. You know, God had given him great strength, but God had done that. This wasn't Samson's ability. God had given him that. And so one day when Delilah is pressing in to try to figure out, you know, what's the secret of your strength, and she's doing it kind of as a covert agent of the Philistines, well, Samson finally spills the beans and says, ah, you know what? If you cut my hair, that's gonna, that's gonna lose my strength. Understand that the secret wasn't in the hair, all right? Men, having hair is not as big of a deal as we think it is. It's no sign of strength, all right? It's not in the hair, all right? All you balding men said an amen, myself including. Uh, and so... It wasn't the deal with the, it was that it was a sign of the covenant that he had made with God, the Nazarite vow. But now in shaving that hair, having it cut, it kind of broke that commitment and covenant with the Lord. Strength was gone. And so here's what we read now in Judges 16 verse 20. And she said, Delilah, the Philistines are upon you and Samson, or Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That's key. That's important. You see that? He did not know the Lord had departed from him. And he went out to, to just to kind of take down the Philistines like he had done in previous times thinking, no problem. Suddenly he realized, I'm not functioning any longer in the, in the strength of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. You see, just like Samson here, and just like Israel in their history, they disregarded the privilege of that fellowship with God, of his presence in their lives. And the same can happen to us when we choose sin and walk in willful disobedience. And we're taking on that role of basically asking God to remove himself from those areas of our lives, those areas where we've chosen sin over him. And, and we can keep on functioning like everything is in place. That's what Israel had been doing in Ezekiel's day, still serving around the temple so everything was fine but it's only a matter of time before you crash and burn and realize that God has been absent from your life and from your ministry. How we need to be careful that we don't take the presence of God for granted, but rather that we see the extreme privilege we have of just coming in and enjoying fellowship with him. May his fellowship and his presence be sought after in our lives more than temporary pleasures. Now, the question is, if that glory is removed, can it ever come back again? You bet it can. And that's what we see now in Ezekiel 43. If you're not already there, turn to Ezekiel 43, because as we pick it up in our study here, this is what we begin to see. Because we've seen in chapters 40 to 42, God giving Israel again a reminder that there will be a temple. All right? The glory in Ezekiel's day had left the temple and then eventually the temple was destroyed. And they all thought, that's it. God's done with us. We're, we're now, you know, on our own. We've been abandoned. There's no hope for us, but God gives them hope and assurance that there will one day be a temple again, that physical reminder of his presence. And now he says, not only am I gonna give you that temple, but I'm gonna dwell in that temple. My presence is gonna return. My glory is gonna be back among you. God desires to reveal himself to his people. And too often when we are not hearing, seeing God, it's because we've stepped away. Well, here now, God says, as 
He brings his people back to him. He's gonna return again. Look at what we read here in verse one. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kabar and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now remember, this is all a vision that Ezekiel is seeing of a future day. They're still in Babylon right now as captives. Their temple is destroyed. That temple being the visual reminder of God's presence dwelling among them. But now they're reminded there's coming a day when God is going to restore them and and renew their relationship with him. And it's interesting that the path that the glory departed from the temple is the same path in which it returns back to the temple. Because it came, the the, the glory of the Lord was was raised up from the temple. It dwelt in in the outer court and then went through the eastern gate up to the mountain. Well, it's the same way that it's going to come back again. In fact, we see that in, in, in part even with Jesus when, when he came riding into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, because it says he descended from the Mount of Olives, right? He comes down and he enters into the Eastern Gate and then into the temple. And it's gonna happen that way at his second coming as well. We'll talk about that more shortly here, but I think this is just so wonderful. I want you to think about the privilege that we have today that the presence of God is dwelling among us. And we have his very presence dwelling in us through his Holy Spirit. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Dwells in you. Do you hear that? And if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. It's not comforting, but the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So God's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. And so that's got to kind of affect the way that we live now. God wants the temple to be holy, just as he wants us to be holy. And if the temple is going to showcase the presence of God, and if we're going to showcase the presence of God, then it should affect the way that we live that we should be holy. And that idea of being holy just simply means being set apart for the Lord. There's not a, a, a fancy word that we kind of, you know, we think sometimes of that word holy and we think, oh my goodness, that is just unattainable. I'm so, I'm so far from that. But that idea of being holy just simply means to be set apart. To be living your life in a way where you're saying, Lord, I'm, I'm choosing you above other things. I want my life to honor you. And so that's what God is directing in these next few verses. Look at verse six with me. It says, Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. They nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places when they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I've consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me and I will dwell in their midst forever. Verse 10, son of man, describe 
the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. Verse 12. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. So God had seen just great wickedness taking place in the temple. I mean, it was sad that not only were the people doing wicked things outside the temple, but they were bringing it right into the temple. Again, like I said, I mean, we typically, you know, we try to put on our, you know, best appearance when we're coming to church. It's not like we think of church as a place where we're going to reserve our most wickedness for, right? We're all like, oh man, I'm around, I'm in the church, man, I got to make sure that I, I don't say that or I don't do that, I don't act that way. But here in Ezekiel's day, they were just doing wicked things. And in fact, God brought Ezekiel in a vision again to see the temple and things that are going on. Ezekiel chapter eight lays it out for us. And Ezekiel was just stunned by the kinds of things that he saw going on right there in the temple. But now God says, this temple that's gonna be erected during the millennium is the temple that I want to remain holy. But again, as we see here, God has given the people of Israel a lot of grace and hope by revealing to Ezekiel this is future temple to come. And he gives the measurements to Ezekiel, write it down so that they may know what is to come, but also so that they may live their lives turned around and begin to live holy, right? So he says, whether even if they're ashamed in verse 11 of their sin, give them the measurements of the temple, remind them that God's doing a new thing here now. And, and they're to just turn their lives around and live for him. You know, there's no sense having a, a holy temple if it's not going to be kept holy. And in the same way, there's no sense calling ourselves Christians if we're not seeking to be holy and set apart for the Lord. You know, we've been created by God for that purpose. We've been created by God to bring honor and glory to Him and to just reveal the greatness of God in our lives. And so God's called us to life of holiness so that we would do just that. It's like, take your toothbrush for instance, Right? Your toothbrush is reserved for one purpose, brushing your teeth. You don't use your toothbrush to wash the dishes or to clean the toilet, right? You might take somebody else's toothbrush that's kind of annoyed you and use it for that purpose. Don't, don't do that, but <clears throat> anyways, it's used for one purpose. Brush your teeth, it's, it's, it's reserved, it's, it's set apart. It's like that toothbrush is holy, it's set apart for one, and that's the same with us. It's not that the toothbrush is any more special than any other kind of instruments you have or tools you have around the house. It's not any more special or grand. It's just set apart for one purpose and that's the same as us. There's nothing special about us. It's not that, you know, we're to put on this, this act and try to be all Christian. Like we're just to be set apart for Christ, to be worshipers of him, to be used of him, to make him known. That's what we've been created to do. And we do that not, again, out of some religious act. That's not what I'm getting at. We do it because not only are we made by Jesus, but he, he paid the price to redeem us. He, he bought us back. He sacrificed himself so we could have life and life in him. So now my life is lived with, with joy to honor the Lord because of what he's done for me. And he's filled us with his spirit. His very presence is in us. So we need to live like that. 
Now, it can seem like a tall order to be holy, right? As we talk about this, you can think, man, that's one thing to say, but another thing to do, that's tough stuff. But understand now, he's provided a sacrifice for us to walk in that and to be made holy. And so what do we see next as we move on into verse 13 is that there's an altar there at the temple. The first thing you would come upon when you'd walk into the temple courts was the altar. The altar by which nobody could have access in apart from a sacrifice, apart from an altar. And God's provided that for us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Look at what we read here, verse 13. These are the measurements of the altar and cubits. The cubit is one cubit and handbreadth, the base one cubit high and one cubit wide with a rim all around its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar from the base on the ground to the lower edge, two cubits, the width of the ledge, one cubit from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits and the width of the ledge, one cubit. Um, let me just stop right there, okay? You get the idea. Here's the altar that's, that's gonna be there. It's a large altar. It's kind of like three levels high. And, and, and then the ramp that's going up to where the priest would walk up and provide the, the um, sacrifices there. And that altar was that central piece of the temple. Let's read on in verse 18. And he said to me, son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances of the altar on the day when it is made for sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for sprinkling blood on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites who are of the seed of Zadok who approached me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. Then you shall also take the bull of the sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. Verse 24, when you offer them before the Lord, the priests shall throw salt on them and they will offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Every day for seven days, you shall prepare a goat for a sin offering. They shall also prepare a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without blemish. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and so consecrate it. Verse 27. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priest shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar and I'll accept you, says the Lord God. So we see different sacrifices being mentioned. These sacrifices were really just about consecrating the altar, Right? I mean, the, the altar was going to be a place where there would be just a lot of animals getting, you know, put on their burnt uh, and sacrifice and blood would be flowing off the altar. It wasn't a, a, a pretty picture, but here even the altar was to be consecrated, set apart, made holy now for its use and function in and around the, the temple. Now, we had a few weeks back, we had Pastor Wayne sharing and he went through some of the different, uh, went through the, the different offerings that were offered up and and again, how it relates to us offering up our body. We see three offerings being mentioned in that passage, right? Anybody hear what they were? Three offerings being mentioned. Go ahead. Who is staying awake here? What's one of them? What's say it again? Grain offering, which is also known as the peace offering. Good. All right. What's another offering mentioned here? Sin offering. Last one. Burnt offering. All right. So we got burnt offering, we got sin offering, and we got the peace offering or or grain offering. And you know, here's the thing. We can put a lot of effort in our lives to trying to be right, do right, live in a way where it's like, okay, I gotta live for the Lord. And, and we can put a lot of energy and focus upon ourselves to say, oh, here's what we gotta do. 
But we need to understand something here, that Jesus has done the work for us. He became the offering in our place. He became that burnt offering where he wholly sacrificed himself. He consecrated himself. He gave everything for us. He became that sin offering for us because he took upon himself our sin. First Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus became that sin offering, taking our sin. And now he's a peace offering for us. He's brought us into fellowship with God. We now have peace with God, not by what we do, not by our good living, but because of our faith in Jesus. It's accomplished through our trust in him. And, it is, and, and, and more so, not just believing that there's a God, but believing in what Jesus did for us. It's putting our faith in him and not in ourselves. Trusting in his work, not our work. He's done it all for us so that we now just have to come and say, Jesus, I'm just living in you. I'm not striving to try to be holy. I'm not striving to try to say, oh, I gotta make sure that I don't do this or I only do that. And we can put a lot of effort ourselves in these things, but we just need to be living in Jesus. Our, our, our eyes on Jesus. No longer striving to be righteous, but knowing that we're made right in and through our faith in him. And notice those last words in verse 27. And I will accept you, says the Lord God. How good is that? I'll accept you. That's sweet. It says in Ephesians 1 at the end of verse 6 that we are accepted in the beloved. That's speaking of Christ. That God accepts us in and through Jesus Christ now, today. Praise the Lord for that. So temple is there. The glory fills the temple. An altar is there by which we continually come and offer up just uh, the, the sacrifice, but we're reminded the sacrifice Jesus has become for us. And understand, if you weren't with us previously, as we talked about this, some of you might be wondering, again, this whole time period, this whole time frame, what are we talking about? If you're unfamiliar with just kind of like how end times prophecy lines up, let me just in a nutshell remind you again that we're speaking of this period of time um, in the millennium, this thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, what's next on the calendar, in a sense, prophetically, what we believe is gonna come is the rapture of the church, okay? The rapture of the church where Jesus is gonna call up the bride of Christ, which is us, the church believers today. First Thessalonians 4 says that we're gonna be caught up in the clouds to meet him in the air, where we're gonna go with him to heaven. He's preparing a place for us right now. John 14 says that where he is, we may be also. So we're gonna be caught up. We're gonna to go to heaven for seven years. While that seven years unfolds, what's happening here on this earth is now the church is gone. God begins to deal with those that have rejected him. And he begins to bring about that judgment, that wrath of God. But it's drawn off for seven years. Why? So that people have opportunity to repent and give their lives for him before the final judgment comes giving people an opportunity to turn. But also now the church has gone out of the way. That group of people that he wants to concentrate on again, Israel, becomes the focus for the Lord to work on. As we've seen in Ezekiel, he's gonna stir their hearts. He's gonna do a new work in them. And so during that tribulation period, God's renewing that work with Israel. He's dealing with Israel once again. And then after seven years, battle of Armageddon happens and the Lord comes back. Second coming brings an end to that. And it says that we are coming with him, the saints at his side. So we're gonna come back at that, at that um, 
seven year mark after the tribulation. This is the second coming of Christ when he comes back to this world physically, literally, and he ushers in this kingdom of God. All right, where Jesus is gonna be reigning and ruling from this earth and we're gonna be reigning and ruling with him in our glorified bodies. And during the millennial reign, this thousand year reign of Christ, there'll be people that will continue to live and exist that have been, that have been spared through the tribulation and gonna be brought in. They're gonna reproduce. There'll be people being born. And so there'll be us in our glorified bodies, people in, in just physical bodies, but they'll have longer lives during this millennial reign where things are restored again to how God intended it to be all along. It's gonna be glorious. You know, those people that think eternity, like, what am I gonna do for all of eternity? It sounds kind of boring. Like, I don't really know if I, I'm ready for it. And they, oh my goodness, eternity is gonna be so exciting. We're gonna be living here on this earth for a thousand years in a glorified body to where we can just say, up and go. You want a vacation in Hawaii? You're there. You need to get back in Jerusalem for a feast. You're there. You're not, you're not having to book a flight. You're not having to drive. You're just there. You're in a glorified body. You can just be there. You can go wherever you want. And, and we're going to be experiencing life the way it was meant to be under the reign of Christ. It's going to be glorious. And then after the thousand year reign of Christ, he creates a new heaven, a new earth. Oh my goodness. Eternity is going to be amazing. I can't wait for it. It's going to be glorious. And we think of heaven as, I mean, we're in heaven for seven years and there's a new heaven, a new earth created after the millennium. So it's just like, oh my goodness, I can't wait. But we got, we got a lot of work to do in the meantime, all right? We're, to be, we're not to be sitting here just waiting. And this is where the church gets it wrong sometimes because sometimes we can get into that kind of club where it's like, well, the world has just gone so evil. I'm just waiting for heaven. We're just sitting back, like just kind of holding our breath, going, oh, just trying not to be tainted by the world and just trying to be waiting for heaven. No, listen, you're not in a waiting room for heaven. You're to be the church now, being living missionally, getting out into the world to say, hey, God's coming again. Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Get out there and tell people about it. Don't just be holding your breath, waiting for it. Get out there and begin to bring heaven to where people are and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, right? Amen, are you with me? Okay, let me have a little sip here because I don't know where that came from, but we just need to say that. So why did I get into that? Um, okay, it's slowly coming back to me. And now it's gone. Okay, so we'll move on. There was a reason why I got into that. Um, so, so just wanted to let you know, okay, oh, yeah, this is what I was leading to, okay. And it has nothing to do with what I was just talking about, but, um, yeah, there we go. Squirrel, there it is. Okay, so, millennial, the thousand year reign of Christ, glorious, we're in a glorified body, we're reigning and ruling with Christ, but, in case you missed a previous message from this, why are there sacrifices? Because Jesus, you know, brought an end to sacrifices. It's all in him. But why are there sacrifices? Why is there an altar? Why are these things happening? Because these things, I believe, are serving as a memorial. Just as sacrifices in the Old Testament looked ahead to what Jesus would do, so in the millennium, we're going to have sacrifices that will look back upon what Jesus has accomplished for us. And they'll be simply there to just 
praise the Lord, just as communion today serves as a memorial, in a sense, a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Those emblems of communion don't save us or cleanse us or purify us, but we do that in remembrance of what Jesus did, his body uh, pictured in the bread, his blood shed for us, pictured in the, in the cup uh, of juice. So it's a memorial just as now, <laughs> just as, um, yeah, those sacrifices are. I just had Judy texting me. She's watching. Hi, Judy. She's saying, squirrel. She's saying squirrel too. So she's, yes, there we go. Thanks, Judy. Everybody say hi to Judy. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Throwing me off here. I'm supposed to have this in airplane mode where I don't get texts and I was throwing me off. What's going on today? Okay. All right. So listen, chapter 44. Um, so <laughs> he, uh, chapter 44. So we've seen the, the temple and the glory again there now. We get to chapter 44 here now. We begin to see again just how that glory was coming in. Verse one, then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened and no man shall enter by it because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. So interestingly, now we see in the millennium, this eastern gate is gonna be shut, closed off. It's presently shut. And it has been for centuries. See, back in 1517, as the Turks conquered Jerusalem under the leadership of Suleiman the, the Magnificent, he commanded the ancient walls of the city be rebuilt. And in the rebuilding of this uh, ancient city walls, he, for some reason, ordered that the eastern gate be sealed up with stones. Back in 1517, so legends abound why he decided to do that. The most believable one is that while the walls were being rebuilt, a rumor swept Jerusalem that the Messiah was coming. So Suleiman called together some of the Jewish rabbis and asked them to tell him about the Messiah. They described the Messiah as a great military leader who would be sent by God from the east and he would enter the eastern gate and liberate the city from foreign control. So Suleiman then decided, well, let's put an end to these Jewish hopes. Let's seal up the eastern gate that will block this coming Messiah from being able to come in as they say he'll come into the Eastern Gate. We'll block him, we'll keep him out and they will have no hope now and, and this will stop all of this. And then he also put a, a, a Muslim cemetery in the front of the Eastern Gate thinking that no holy man, no Jewish holy man will ever tread upon a cemetery because it would defile him. So not only do we have a Muslim cemetery and a closed off Eastern Gate that is still that way today, there is today a Muslim cemetery in front of the Eastern Gate that you can see that is closed off. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's not the Eastern Gate that was existing in Jesus' time. But through some archaeology and some accidental discovery, there was a hole that uh, as people were digging around there, they went down through and they realized that the Eastern Gate was sitting right underneath that. And so here's the great thing. Suleiman goes, we're going to prevent the Messiah from coming. We're going to close out the Eastern Gate as it is to this day. Muslim cemetery in front. We've been up there right at the Eastern Gate on some of our tours, right when there's a Muslim you know, funeral procession taking place up there. It's that way today. Kind of just as Ezekiel prophesied. But if Jesus is going to return that same way, 
as he did when he rode into Jerusalem at his first coming in the Eastern Gate, Eastern gate being closed off is gonna be no problem for Jesus when he comes again. Look at what we read in Zechariah 14, four. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move forward or toward the north and half of it toward the south. See, what's gonna happen when Jesus comes back again, a second coming, with us to the side, we get a front row seat to this. He's gonna set his feet on the Mount of Olives and it's just gonna quake and it's gonna just be split in two. This whole mountain valley and, and there is a, a fault line that runs right through there. And I believe that Eastern gate that's blocked off is just gonna be split open. And he's gonna come through. In fact, it tells us in Psalm chapter, oh, I'm gonna forget this Psalm now. Does anybody remember? The gates, it says, um, you know, be lifted up, O gates. In other words, I think that even old Eastern gate, the original Eastern gate, when that is split in two, it's like that gate is just gonna be lifted up, opened up for the way of Jesus to come through there again at his second coming. But here's the thing now we read in the millennium that it's gonna be sealed again. That's interesting. Why would it be sealed again? Well, that was kind of a practice that happened in some uh, ancient cultures where uh, a you know, a high dignitary, a king, or somebody of just, you know, very kind of, um, you know, holy dignitary honor, that kind of thing, you know what I'm trying to say. When he would come in through that gate of the city, they would seal it off again saying, oh, we've just been in the presence of somebody of, of high stature. So we're gonna seal the gate so that nobody else comes through it. So that's what often happens. So it seems like maybe this is, an, uh, 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 again, kind of a memorial that, listen, as the glory departed from the temple and out through the east gate, so the glory is going to come in again and it's going to enter into the temple and that gate's going to be sealed almost as a show of like, that glory is never going to depart again. It's never going to go. We're here now and we're here to stay. Isn't that great? Now, there's one person that is going to have access to that gate, the prince. Anybody know who the prince is? David. No, it's not that. Now, a lot of people will say, Jesus. A lot of people say this is, Jesus is the prince during this time. This is who it's going to be. The prince, the Antichrist, Satan is going to be during the tribulation and dealt with. And so this is not during the millennial time now, but many say it's Jesus, it's the Messiah, but that's not who the prince is. All right. I was expecting a lot of you just to say Jesus, because that's the Sunday school answer to give, right? Question goes out, it's Jesus. That's it. Whatever the answer, whatever the question is, it's Jesus, right? I remember one time in, in, in Bible college, I had a little bit of fun because uh, I was sitting by this, this girl and the teacher was rambling on and I knew nobody was paying attention. She asked, who's the key to all the scripture, you know? And the answer is Jesus, right? And then she called upon this girl sitting beside me for the answer. And I knew she all of a sudden like, oh, she wasn't paying attention. I said, Moses. And so she shouted out Moses and <laughs> the teacher was like, no, it's Jesus. Who doesn't say Jesus? Well, she didn't. Anyways, so, so this prince is speaking of somebody other than the Messiah. Now we know, we know that this is not speaking of the Messiah because 
he would make a sin offering for himself. Speaking of the prince, chapter 45, we'll see that. Such is not possible for the Lord Jesus. In addition, this leader, this prince, would have natural children, as chapter 46 tells us. Another impossibility for the Messiah. The leader was a man, but his identity remains unknown. He, he functions as the people's leader in their millennial worship, almost like a high priest, but not having the same role and function. Some have viewed this prince as being King David. We know that, that King David seems that, you know, again, he will be present during this millennial reign of Christ. It's kind of a... Uh, a ruling alongside Jesus figure in the millennium. At the least, this prince will be a descendant of David, it would seem, serving as some kind of vice regent to and with Jesus. So um, some have thought, is this gonna be kind of like the mayor in Jerusalem during the millennial? Like we'll have these, these people that are serving in these roles. Uh, so the prince is gonna have access not to go through the gate, but to sit in the gate there and, and again, just kind of conduct... Um, business and, and, and have various things to do there. But let's pick it up in verse four. Also, he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. So I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all its laws. Mark well who may enter the house and all who go out from the sanctuary. Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. When you brought in foreigners uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary, to defile it, my house, and when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. Verse eight, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have kept or set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. Let me just stop right there. Ezekiel, he sees the glory of the Lord filling the temple once again, and it causes him just to fall on his face, doesn't it? He's just brought into that awareness again of just the greatness of God. And anytime that we just grow in our walk with the Lord, and, and we just, you know, are, are in the presence of the Lord, it should cause us just to see again, you know, more clearly who we are, and just bring us to that place of humility, and our, our utter unworthiness in and of ourselves, just to, to be in the presence of the Lord, but again, he's invited us in. Hebrews 4, 16, he's, he's, in, he's said, man, you, you know, you may enter in to the throne room of grace with boldness. He's invited us, he's paved the way, he's given us opportunity now to enjoy fellowship with him. But understand that we approach humbly. As we grow in the Lord, I think we grow in, in just all the more awareness of our sinfulness and our need for Jesus. Ezekiel here falls on his face. And Ezekiel is instructed to mark well those who are permitted to enter into the temple. And he's called to speak to the rebellious people of Israel to no longer abuse their privileges at the temple. In other words, there's not to be any more abominations, you know, uh, taking place in the temple any longer. Now, don't misunderstand this here. When Ezekiel in verse 9 is told, you know, not to permit any foreigners in there, right? No foreigner uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary. This is not like Ezekiel who's told to keep people out from the temple. This is you know, the temple, again, was made up of the temple courts where people would come in and, and, and offer up sacrifices and, and be part of the worship. But in the sanctuary of the temple, the inner place of the, of the sanctuary, only the priest could go in the tribe of Levi. 
This wasn't permitted for anybody and everybody, but that had been abused. Jesus, even when we see of him going to the temple, he would go to the temple courts. He was of the tribe of Judah. And not even Jesus would go into the sanctuary, the temple. The temple that was made up of the holy place and then the most holy, the holy of holies. Jesus didn't even go, he was in the temple courts. And so this call for foreigners not to go in the sanctuary is like, don't, don't overstep your ground. Only the Levites can go in there. Only those that have set themselves apart for the Lord and for service to do so. But understand that God is not making this a primary where it's like, you need to keep people out. Because sometimes I think we can fall into that trap of thinking, oh, we got to really watch out who's coming in. We got to protect the church. We got to make sure that, you know, people look right, that they act right, they speak right. They can't come in if they're not going to really aren't. But understand something here, that the church is to be a place not of perfect people, but of imperfect people that are finding that perfection in Jesus. We want people to come in so they can be made whole, so they can find Jesus, so they can be made right in him and, and, and experience fellowship with him. We, we don't need to be standing at the door and just kind of judging and looking at people and going, mm, I don't know if, you're, if you really should be coming in here. And sadly, the church can be that way sometimes. Not this church, I'm talking about other, other churches, but sadly, the church can be that way sometimes. Understand here, really, God's heart. Look at what he says in, in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 68. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. See what God says here? My house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, for all people to come. I'm gonna gather the outcasts of Israel to come. Let this be a place where people feel welcomed, where people feel loved, where people can come in and, and find Jesus and grow in Jesus and learn of Jesus. Don't put that stumbling block in front of people to think, oh, you need to be right before you come in. Oh, you need to act right. You need to talk right. You need to dress right before you come in. Let people come in as they are and let the Lord do that work in their lives. Don't you be the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit do the work and you just be those that can be that vessel of sharing the love of Christ with people. That's what the church is, is called to do here. Well, that last section of chapter 44 contains now rules for the priests who will be serving in the millennial temple. So going to be raising up people that will be carrying out the different functions there. And here's the thing. Peter says in, in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. So these things have application to us. Let me share some of them with you. Look at verse 15. It says there, but the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary and they shall come near my table to minister to me and they shall keep my charge. Who were the priests to be serving? Who? Who are they ministering unto? The Lord. 
They're to minister unto me, we see repeated in verses 15 and 16. Understand that all ministry, all activity, man, has to be done to the Lord. It's not done for yourself. It's not done to others in a way where it kind of helps us feel better. No, it's done unto the Lord. We're serving God. Everything you do, Paul says, do unto the Lord. That way, whether somebody acknowledges what you've done or thanks you, it doesn't matter because you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for the Lord. And he who sees what is done in the secret will reward openly. You're blessed as you serve the Lord and God calls these priests, serve me. Be used to me. Let it be done unto me. Secondly, we also see, like at verse 17 and 18. And it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner court that they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. God says, hey guys, don't, don't, you know, don't put on the, the woolly parkas. Don't put on the, the toques, right? Let there be linen turbans, linen garments. It was breathable. Why? Because God says, I don't want ministry to be a sweat. I don't want you to sweat it out in the ministry. Sometimes we can feel like that, right? Like ministry becomes like something, oh man, this is tough. And it's a burden. And we're just like, well, we got to do it because God's called us to do it. And we're just like grinding away. And yet God says, man, it's not to be a sweat. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn in me for my yoke is easy. and You'll find rest for your souls. The Lord says, I, I don't want living for me or serving me to be a grind, to be a sweat, to be a burden. And as we're serving the Lord and doing it all unto him, and in and through his strength, I don't think it's gonna be. It shouldn't be. There should be more inspiration than there is perspiration as we're serving the Lord. Do it unto him. Verse 19 and 20, it says this. When they go out to the outer court, to the outer court, to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered, leave them in the holy chambers and put on other garments. And in their holy garments, they shall not sanctify the people. They shall neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow long, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed. Man, he's really precise in all these instructions, right? But he's like, listen, when you go out to the people, man, leave the holy garments aside in the holy chambers. Don't go out trying to impress people. Don't have your hair all done in a way where it's all like, ooh, who's your barber? Wow, that's really special. It's like, just be normal, be humble. Don't kind of have this air over other people where you're better or more special than them. Whatever area of service you have, listen, we're all equal. We're all just the church serving together and looking to elevate and honor God so that he's seen, not us. So don't present your way, yourself in a way where you're more special. Let the honor and the glory be given to God. Verse 21, no priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. It says, I don't want anything influencing you in serving me other than the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, and again, the debate is not over, you know, alcohol or no alcohol. We're not talking about, we're talking about what's influencing you. Let it be the Holy Spirit that is influencing you and leading you on. Verse 28, 
It shall be in regard to their inheritance that I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession in Israel for I am their possession. So the Levite tribe that was serving as priests, they weren't given a, a portion of land when they went into, into Canaan and inherited the land. God says, I'm to be your, your inheritance, your portion. So as we're serving the Lord, let him take care of you. Let him supply for you what you need. Let him be your portion and your inheritance, your blessing, because he desires to do that. Well, we'll close it right there. I'm gonna invite, if we've got some worship team here still, come on up and we're gonna just close with a song here today. And as we do, as they come up and prepare, let me just go over a few points of application we can make here. First of all, again, like we saw, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is his glory dwelling among you? Is he in you? Let us live in a way where we're set apart for him, honoring him, letting his glory be evident and seen in us. Secondly, are you trusting Jesus to be the one to make you holy? It's not found in yourself. It's not through trying harder, doing more. It's through resting in what Jesus has already done for you. He's provided the sacrifice to cleanse you and bring you to him. Thirdly, let us live in a way where we are serving God and ministering before him. Find joy and satisfaction through living our lives for him. We're called to be a royal priesthood, so may we be putting these things into practice and bringing people to Jesus and bringing Jesus to the people. That was the function of a priest right there. All right, let's stand together. Let me pray, and then we'll close with a song here today. So Lord, we come before you here this morning, and as always, Lord, we just honor you. We glorify you. You are awesome, Lord, and we love you, and we thank you for loving us. We thank you for the things that you've spoken to us here today through your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would just leave, or that we would leave here today just encouraged, excited for what is to come, but also, Lord, more encouraged for what you have for us today. God, we're not sitting in a, in a waiting room just awaiting heaven. We're, we're to be living out these lives as priests unto God bringing people before Jesus and bringing you before this world here. So may we live in a way where we're set apart to do just that, Lord. Thank you for filling us and enabling us. And we pray more for that whole, your Holy Spirit just to lead us and fill us and overflow in us that we might have the, the, the energy and the equipping to be ministers of you today. So I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.